This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gap Fest for Thursday, October 5th, the From Mildred to Crystal edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios today, we have June Thomas, the managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. Before we get started, I just want to say, listeners, you were fabulous on the Best Friends topic. A special thanks to Kat Buckley, who sent us pictures of her bestie. They've been besties since they were 10 years old, and they were so charming and cute. Weren't you guys just charmed by that? Like, didn't it make you wish you had a best friend forever? (laughs) <laughs> like a real BFF, not just like BFF, but a real one. It's so, it's so, it's so awesome. It was very awesome. But we also did get letters from people who like related to me and were like, yeah, yeah it's fine. It's fine to not have one. Like, it's great if you have one, but it's all cool. It's all good. Yeah. Well, all friendship relationships are welcome on the double X gap. That's right. Thank you. That's our official <laughs> position on friendship. Exactly. Okay, let's get going. Um, we are going to talk about the legacy of Hugh Hefner, the prince of the Playboy Mansion, hotly debated this week. We discuss. Then we'll talk about the movie The Battle of the Sexes, about the epic gender battle of the 70s between tennis player Billie Jean King and chauvinist tennis player Bobby Riggs with a special guest who covered the match at the time. And then finally, we'll talk about Gloria Allred, the legal defender of assault victims everywhere. Is she a champion of women or does she lock us into a very particular kind of victimhood? Then in our Slate Plus segment, we will discuss 
You want to say what we're going to discuss, Maureen? Uh, we're going to discuss whether it's sexist for women to date older men and not younger men. Or right? contemporaries. <laughs> or contemporaries. Yes. Yeah. Are you harming the sisterhood if you date outside your immediate peer group? <laughs> um, I just want to put in a plug here. I mean, that's going to be a fantastic segment. But, you know, all of our Slate Plus segments are fantastic. All being, just being a member of Slate Plus is a wonderful thing that you can do for journalism, for Slate and for feminism, really, by joining <laughs> while listening to Double X. Uh, there's a little bit of a competition on right now. And uh, I'm shocked to say that we're not winning. So uh, help us win the competition for the most engagement with Slate Plus by joining. You can The first year is just $35 a year. And you can do that by going to slate.com slash XX Plus. And I will say, for some some perverse, wicked reason, our Slate Plus segments are really fun. So <laughs> it's should, true. It's, it's true. true. We really let loose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, behind the curtain, we really let loose. So you should join. Okay, our first topic: Hugh Hefner, the Prince of the Playboy Mansion, died last week, prompting much debate about his legacy and the nature of the sexual revolution. Ross Douthat called him a pornographer and a chauvinist who got rich on masturbation. I actually just like I just had an image of Ross's face as he was writing to you. <laughs> You're just like, ur, 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 like that way, just like banging the keyboard. That bastard. Um, also, feminist Susan Brown Miller called him my enemy in what I believe was the same. It was they were both in the in the New York Times on the same day, right? Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Other people praised him for support of abortion rights, uh, for liberation, for all kinds of good things. So, um, so it felt like basically we were debating the uh, the fallout of the sexual revolution through <laughs> debating Hugh Hefner. Um, so, did you guys have natural sympathy to one position? Well, actually, before we get to the position, let me ask you guys. Do, did you guys do you guys have any associations in your head with the Playboy Mansion? Um, you know the Grotto, very famously. You know, just pictures of sort of women draped around men. Like I have, I have sort of a seedy eighties image of that, and then I have a seedy mid aughts image of Hugh Hefner as reality television star <laughs> with all of these very blonde, very tan, very um, surgically enhanced young. young, young women kind of draped over him in his silk pajamas. And I think those are the two sort of Playboy mansion images that I have. Yeah. I, I also have that view of like the Playboy mansion as the ultimate man cave, but also kind of the ultimate fuck palace, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of nightmare scenario of like... It's almost the sexual revolution for men. Like, yes, women are there, but they're they're there as objects. And, you know, I think we should also mention that the end of that quote of Ross Douthat's that you mentioned, a pornographer and chauvinist who got rich on masturbation, consumerism and the exploitation of women. And the Playboy Mansion was definitely about the exploitation of women. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the difficulties of talking about Hugh Hefner is that there's a Hugh Hefner for every decade. Mm-hmm, you know, there's mm-hmm. like a 50s Hugh Hefner. There's a sort of 50s through late 60s Hugh Hefner, which is one I know really well just from from uh, reading Thy Neighbor's Wife, the Gates Lee's book. Um, <laughs> and that Hugh Hefner is fascinating. Like, like what was going through his head, what he was thinking, how he grew up, his own mother, his first marriage. Really, really interesting. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Then there's a Hugh Hefner of the sort of 80s and 90s, which is a camp. Hugh Hefner, you know, like it, it, it's almost showboating chauvinism. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to know whether to take him seriously, how much of it is camp. He seems so 
uptight and controlled that you can't really imagine him as genuinely sexual. You know, like in the mm-hmm. free love 60s, he doesn't seem sexual. He just seems like a weirdo control freak walking around with dolls, you know? Um, <laughs> no, it's sterile. Like, it's weird. No, you're right. Yeah, totally right. Um, it's not sexual, which was not the young Hugh Hefner, who was very interested in actual sex with actual women. Um, and then there's the kind of late stage reality TV Hugh Hefner, which I don't even know. That's just like ridiculous. You know, like a really old yeah. man with really young women, and it's like... It, just ridiculous like in the reality tv everything is exaggerated and nothing has any meaning way yeah one of the sort of funniest slash most trenchant tweets i saw about his death was someone said he lived long enough that his first wife was named mildred and his last wife was named crystal and that sort of i think sums up his arc (laughs) that's awesome from mildred to crystal the hugh hefner story yeah that's really really good um did do you did you i mean it sounded to me like june that you you're of the sort of like he's a revolting pimp susan a little susan brown miller or even ross douthat i don't know who you you can put it in the feminist (laughs) camp or the cultural conservative camp but um that you just find him just like gross not just but I do find him gross. I mean, and it, I do think too, though, that you know, again, it's this. As I think you make a great point about this, how there's a different uh, heft for every decade, and this whole thing, the response uh, to his death. You know, he lived to ninety one, so yeah, there are there's a lot of you know, there were, there were, he had a lot of selves, a lot of uh, versions of himself, and just the fact that, as you say, on the pages of the New York Times, even it caused this strange confluence of feminism. And, you know, conservatism, uh, both complaining about him, because to me, it was a flashback to the 80s. And, you know, the whole sex wars where uh, the anti-pornography feminists were, you know, essentially in alliance with like Ed Meese and and religious conservatives fighting pornography and that old kind of strange bedfellows idea that, um, you know, yes, he was an activist for abortion rights, which might set off some uh, conservatives, but it was in... In, and that was a good thing. And he, you know, he made contributions. He he put um, uh, editorials in his magazines. He, you know, he actually, he was a genuine supporter of abortion rights, but for men, you know, it was in service of men. Uh, he didn't want men to have to deal with the pregnancies that they caused. Uh, and, you know, yes, he also didn't want women to die from illegal abortions, which is a really good point of view that I can, you know, fully support. But it wasn't because... His valuing of women was as trinkets or as dolls or as objects. He really thought of women as objects for men's, you know, satisfaction, for men's pleasure. Um, you know, he was very much opposed to militant feminists. You know, that part of it, the point of Playboy magazine was to bring down the militant feminists. And so it's impossible for me to think of him as someone that I would, you know, ally myself with, even if, you know, the, the stopped clock Uh, stopped at the same place for both of us, uh, you know, at least twice a day or something like that. Yeah, I had a real moment reading Ross's column of like, almost entirely agreeing with him uh, with with some exceptions where he and I have different views on certain social issues like abortion. Um, But I think, you know, I was just saying this to June before we taped, but I think 10 years ago, I would have reacted quite differently to Ross's Mm -hmm. column. I'm of that sort of female chauvinist pigs generation where we 
you know, were, were raised on Girls Gone Wild. And I and I would have said that he was being sex negative, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and now I was sort of cheering him on. And I was trying to think about what the change was in me and what the change was in the culture. But I really do think um, there was a line towards the end of his piece where he said, you know, liberals ought to think about what it means that this, you know, this is sort of the the you know, your campaign for freedom and, you know, equality for all, that this is, you know, one way that it has ended up. And then conservatives ought to think about why your culture has become so playboyified, right? Mm-hmm. That like Donald Trump, the ultimate playboy, is sort of your standard bearer. And I thought that was a line worth considering. Mm-hmm. I liked that ending line, but I, I here's where I disagree with Ross. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Hugh Hefner it's not like Hugh Hefner's responsible for the sexual revolution. Like, it was well underway as he got going. His particular contribution to the sexual revolution, I think of it in two different ways. One is really complicated, and it's and it's hard to completely dismiss, which is making fantasy and desire for everybody not shameful. Um, just that it wasn't something that you absolutely had to hide, that desire wasn't a dirty thing, um, that fantasies could be out in the open. And that was but true. A very... Wait, but that, right. So, so I'll get to the very particular kind, but but that, just stay at that fact for a moment. Like it all was around like Vargas girls. There was a little bit going on in the movies, like Jane Mansfield, you know, you know, expressed that she wanted to go to bed with a woman. But if you read Hugh, about Hugh Hefner's courtship of his first wife, he was serious about that. Like he was ser- serious about that project of just like human desire and fantasy. It was during when the Kinsey report was coming out. And there is a line from that to like women's desire being recognized and gay desire being recognized and queer desire being recognized. Now, it was always going to be harder for everyone but men because, you know, women's des- like people were going to misunderstand it and be afraid of it. And for women, gay, for anybody but men, it was going to be more difficult. But the world before that that was like unthinkable. Like if you if you had to choose between like being living the life of Hugh Hefner's mother, this completely repressed like the body is shameful, everything is shameful. Like no way, there's no other choice. Now, like the particular template of fantasy that he chose is I don't have mixed feelings about that. Like it's commercialized. Like the idea of the good life is like. You know, I think he did as much harm to men as he did to women. And I guess that's yeah. what Ross saying about conservative, like the idea that the, the pinnacle of the good life is just consumer goods, you know, all these awesome things. And one of the consumer goods is a woman like that. Right. There's a nothing, young woman, a young woman. There's nothing. Good, I got nothing good to say about that view of human relationships. And I don't know how he like it seems to me one is is actually a negation of the other like he began with the sense of like let desire free and then he ended at a place which just like killed desire you know it was very mm-hmm. superficial and cold for everybody um um so so it's he's confusing to me yeah but it's it's a very 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 prescribed version of desire like a constricting one you know it's i mean if you look if you look at Playboy centerfolds through the years, obviously it evolved. It wasn't originally, you know, this person who looks like Barbie necessarily, but that is where it ended up. And the fact that it got more and more rigid over the years, to me, that doesn't actually speak to this being founded on an idea of fantasy. You know, it speaks to, I'm not quite sure what it speaks to, but but I think that, as you said, having done more harm to men than women, yeah, that might be true. It makes 
men actually think that they can only have one kind of fantasy and then in turn women sort of internalize it. I mean, it's just like a whole mess. And and there are reasons why that ended up that way. You know, he had to Playboy had to compete with sort of more hardcore porn that was out there or even like magazines like Hustler. But I think that I just I just don't buy that as a reading of Hugh Hefner in total, right? Like even in the 50s, what he was selling was a little bit prescribed, right? It was like using it was using cultural signifiers like Nietzsche jazz. and jazz I, to make him seem more interesting and what he was doing to seem more interesting than what it actually was. It seems like he was a great PR agent for himself and he got high on his own supply that he believed that this image of freedom that he, you know, that was his version of freedom was was freedom. And he sold that relentlessly because he truly believed it, I suspect. I mean, yeah. who knows? Um, but it doesn't it applies to him and a few people that bought his packaging, but it's not actually freedom. The other thing that I do want to mention with him. So I weirdly had the experience within a year of each other of interviewing a couple of different sets of women who are roughly contemporaries of each other. The first we did in New York Magazine, we we interviewed a bunch of women who had been Playboy centerfolds um, in the largely in the 60s and 70s, and we dressed them up in lingerie. It was actually a very cool photo shoot, but they were super positive about their experience. They mm. felt it was empowering that it had gotten them to a, a certain kind of a place. Um, and then I interviewed these women who were accusing Bill Cosby of sexual assault, and many of them mentioned Cosby's friendship with Hugh Hefner and Hugh Hefner's role and, you know, sort of this idea of the Playboy Mansion as a place where the kind of things that Cosby was doing happened, right? That, mm-hmm. that like, quaaludes were around, that this certain idea of, like, women as just playthings. That I mean, that's literally what the, what the Playboy Bunny uh, image is premised on. So it's not – I mean, there is a real – you know, to to uh, channel Ross, there is a rottenness to it. Mm-hmm. But how do you separate one from the other? Like when I read that last sentence of Ross's, I totally agree with him. We need to think about this. But I feel like what's underneath that underneath think about this is we need to go back to a time when this wasn't true. And I feel like that's just avoiding the difficulty of how you how you get the, you know, liberated, empowered Playboy bunnies without getting the rottenness. Like has anybody ever walked that line Perfectly. Like his idea of the girl next door, there's something, you know, the original, the original Playboy girls, there's something, you know, people always read that as slightly creepy, but it's also liberating. It's this mm-hmm. idea that like, you don't have to be the good girl next door, like you can look like the girl next door. And you also are an object of desire and sexual and all that is in one package. And that's probably the girls that you guys featured in New York Magazine who found it, you know, who said right. that they found it liberating. Um, right. Of so course. the question is, maybe now the job of feminists, uh, the work of feminists and men is to like rein it back in some way. You know, like I feel like Ross, if he had his brothers, he would rein it back like a longer way than I would or further than I would. He would close the door harder (laughs) than I would. And it's like I think that you just have to be honest about the fact that like you you open this door that the Kinsey report and Hugh Hefner and sexual revolution and everything that got opened in the 60s, like you get a lot of crap, you know. I mean, this is like the deuce, the HBO show, the deuce. There's a lot of that in there. You know, there's like little strains of of empowerment and liberation alongside just a huge amount of violence and and, and kind of damage to women. Well, here's what I will say is that other countries seem to have less of a problem with this than we do. Right. Like 
both the both the like the sexual revolution seems to have taken more easily in other countries. Like we have we have done a more extreme version of it. And and I think in this weird way, you can see the Puritanism at the heart of America in the like um, very prescribed, very plasticky, very um, unsexy version of the sexual revolution that has happened. And I think that there is like something weird about the American character that took it to this version rather than sort of stopping in a place where it might have been more equitable. Like, I just think that there is something about our national repression that is at work here. That is so interesting. So it's like Mm. Puritanism and consumer culture. It's like those are the things we do really well and those are just not good for the sexual. Like both of those (laughs) things are ugly places to take a sexual revolution or ugly, you know, backgrounds for a sexual revolution. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Okay, listeners, here's what we'd love to hear from you. Since we started by talking about the hue of every decade, if you have any particular associations with Hugh Hefner or the Playboy Mansion, we would be curious to hear them. We're basically trying to figure out, like, do people of different ages just have a completely different template of Hugh Hefner and the Playboy Mansion in their head? So if you'd like to share any thoughts, images, or memories you have about this, including of the reality show, we would love to hear it. You can write us at Fest at Slate.com or just go onto our Facebook page, facebook.com slash doublexgabfest and share your thoughts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. All right, let's move to our second topic. We are going to talk about the 1973 tennis battle between feminist champion Billie Jean King and showboating chauvinist Bobby Riggs. It's the subject of a movie now in theaters starring Emma Stone and Steve Carell. The movie tells a clean, inspirational version of events. Today, we are going to talk to Grace Lichtenstein, a New York Times reporter who covered the tour at the time and wrote, I don't know if I want to call it less inspiration, less inspirational because that's not what it is, just a kind of more real version of what happens in her book, A Long Way Baby. Grace, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Sure. So, Grace, I uh I'm I'm so like I'm in a state of of, of uh, ridiculous excitement to talk with you because I read your book uh, when it first came out in, and I was in England and I was obviously very very young at the time, uh, but it was the book that really made me want to come to America, which I did about thirty five years ago. Um, so this is a, a super thrill to talk with you. But I love this book. I love the way that you really um, told a very feminist story, but also a really complicated story about what it was like for these women who were athletes, um, but also maybe even without knowing it for some of them, uh, you know, being revolutionaries. And having seen the movie, do you, how do you feel that it caught the vibe of that? Because as well as talking about the match between Billie Jean and Bobby Riggs, it also covers to a certain extent that that attempt to break away and to kind of start a a separate tour that was really explicitly feminist. Did you think it captured the vibe of of women's tennis in 1973? I think it captured some of it. Certainly, um, a movie can do only so much. And 
the movie wasn't really about um, the tour of 1973. It was about uh, the uh, the match that came to overshadow everything from that year in tennis. Uh, I, but I think it I think it did a good job. Uh, I do think that it was um, I don't know what the word to use is. I thought thought it was more a TV movie of the week yeah. than a great film, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, I will say that I saw it with um, ladies of all ages, and the person who was completely profoundly moved by it was my 10-year-old friend. I mean, she just loved it, and she went home like <laughs> it was completely digestible for her. It's my friend's daughter, Franny, and she just was really like wide-eyed and, oh, my God, and what kind of chauvinist was that, and why would he call himself that, and that was amazing, and the kind of the way the gayness was just like just real enough for her. So. There was a sense that it kind of, you know, like you said, it's it's a sort of it's a, it, it's the nicest version of what happened. Um, what I wondered about Grace watching it was people who are just a little bit older than me who were actually there uh, say like this was a real event. Like Dana Stevens wrote this in Slate. Like people were talking about it on the schoolyard. I mean, did you have a sense that kind of internally women were were rooting for her victory? Like, is that what made it huge? There was just a sense that it would would rectify some some injustice. Like like bring down the the the, the schoolyard the Donald Trump of that era, the kind of schoolyard bully type guy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it became a um, a great um, and. I felt kind of silly, but wonderful national dialogue. I mean, men and women uh, were betting against what one another. Husbands and wives were uh, doing crazy things, like if he wins, you have to um, uh, mow the lawn, and if she wins, I'll cook <laughs> dinner for a week. And was he, in the movie, you can't tell if he's faking his chauvinism. Like, it's, it's in a sense, feels... Uh, not that dangerous because he feels like he's inhabiting it. Like clearly it gets adopted by other people and seeps into the culture and it's ugly, but in himself, it feels like a show. Um, And I wonder if it felt that way at the time or if it had a real edge to it. Bobby was after the money. Uh Uh, This was a payday for him. He was a showman. Um, uh, I doubt very much that he was, that he believed everything that he said but he loved the publicity. Uh, he had been out of the spotlight for many years, and he, he was, in, in his day, a Wimbledon champ, and um, uh, he was looking forward to a big payday. Grace, what do you think of the, um, the, the long-held rumor that he actually threw the match because he'd gambled on it? I think it's my understanding that that has been debunked. Uh, uh, that was debunked a long time ago. You know, the the thing that's so great about your book is that it conveys this idea of these tennis players, these athletes as outlaws. And I don't think that now people who are used to seeing, you know, the, the, the megastars that are, are today's tennis players can imagine what it was like back then um, for, you know, these the people on the nascent tour, staying with people, having to kind of roll out the court, which we see in a very quick montage in the movie – can you say a bit about what it was like uh, to be on the tour in 1973, what, what the women's tour was like? There are so many things that are different about tennis now uh, compared with um, 
44 years ago. And it, it was a huge step for the women to break away from uh, the uh, tennis authorities and set up their own tour. Um, on the other hand, it, the, the, the women were getting so much less money. Uh, the pay was so unequal on the tour, even for the biggest events like Wimbledon and the, and the U.S. Open, uh, that um, it was the right move to make. But it was quite brave of them because there was just a handful of players who dared to say, I'm not going to stand for this anymore and let's do our own tour. And it really cost Billie Jean, right? I mean, the, this this movie shows, you know, which she was, uh, you know, a special consultant on, um, shows how much work she did for it. But it it doesn't really give a, a sense of, I don't think of her charisma. I think that's something that Emma Stone really looks like Billie Jean, but I don't think she conveys her, her sort of slightly odd charisma and her weird way of talking and her just her, her, I don't know, just the, the peculiarities of her. She seems like a much more normal person than I think the real Billie Jean was <laughs> as a player. Um, but, it, you know, she was a major organizer, right? I mean, she... Uh, yes, I mean, the tour was organized by Gladys Hellman, mm-hmm. uh, as the movie shows. But Billie, Billie Jean was an organizer of the players. She always was the leader. Uh, she was the one who said, come on, let's do it. And she had been that kind of a person since she started on the tour. I mean, you know, the other players were kind of black and white, and Billie Jean was technicolor. (laughs) Grace and June, actually, how much did did watching the women's tennis tour in that era feel like an explicitly feminist act, and how much did it feel like it was in conversation with this larger sort of movement in America? I don't think that back then... uh, following the tour, it seemed particularly feminist because the women themselves were so young for the most part and um, so naive or at least um, not terribly familiar with the what was going on in the world that they felt themselves to be feminist. Uh, Billie Jean certainly did, but... Um, that things were so different back then that uh, even feminism was still in its early stages. And um, so it felt like a tennis tour. It didn't feel like a a women's lib movement until (laughs) that was made explicit with Bobby Riggs' challenge. Hmm. I I, I mostly went to tournaments between like 1977 and 1982. Um, And then later in the in the late 90s or early 2000s, I went to some more. And what was really striking was the difference that now it's very professionalized. Now it's very sanitized. Everybody's, you know, nobody would say anything interesting except the Williams sisters who kind of do their own thing. Um, and it, it just felt that that was really significant. It felt much more commercialized, um, not necessarily in a bad way, but just more sanitized, I guess. And that felt just less do-it-yourself, less indie, which is good for the sport and probably good for everyone, including especially the players. But it also, you know, it lost a little bit of a zing because of that. What about her relationship, the gayness, sort of, the movie handles that in a, 
you know, a nice but relatively safe way. Uh, I wonder how how big a deal that was on the tour itself, how much people knew. Like, was that a really dangerous secret? Sort of what did that feel like at the time? Was that a really dangerous, dangerous secret? Of course it was. We're talking 1973. I mean, uh, Billie Jean was married, for one thing, uh, and um, there was a sense on the tour uh, when she started traveling with Marilyn Barnett that, uh, yes, uh, they were lovers, but nobody talked about it because everybody, not just in tennis, but everybody back in the day was closeted. Uh, and it was dangerous because the, there was always this knock on all women athletes that they were secretly lesbian. And um, today, who cares, right? But back then it was a really big deal. Lesbianism was the third rail of, of uh, women's uh, sports in general and women's sports coverage. And while within the tour, people, it might have been common knowledge that, that Billie Jean uh, was having an affair with Marilyn, uh, it was never spoken of, and the other players knew it, but the world at, la- at large had no idea. In fact, they had no idea about Billie Jean until Marilyn outed her with the palimony suit uh, that she filed, which came later and is not, of course, mentioned in the right. film. Although, you know, Grace, I was flipping through your book and you mentioned Marilyn because she was there with Billie Jean. And so in that sense, maybe you were in part responsible for kind of getting that out there a little bit more. And just, again, because you were telling the real story of the tour, um, not that you, you know, put, attached any labels, but you mentioned that she was traveling with her secretary, who always seemed to be there. Uh, so um, that, because I, 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 I certainly drew that conclusion when I first read the book. I think uh, some others did too, but um, it didn't seem to, to resonate with people back then. Uh, because unless you actually came out and said, I'm gay, uh, nobody outed anybody. And I, in that book, I might have hinted that, um, uh, hinted broadly as <laughs> that, that there was something going on. I outed no one. Right. June, I'm so curious. What about this book made you want to move to America? <laughs> it was such an exciting world. It was such an exciting world. You'd be in Oklahoma City one day, and then the next day you would be in, I don't know, Someplace in Indiana. <laughs> Tulsa, yeah, exactly. Someplace in Indiana. And it was this this incredible, like, it felt very, it was the American entrepreneurial spirit, you know, that you would get up and go and you would start a tour. And I just couldn't imagine anything like that happening in Britain. But it wasn't like a fantasy of dating Billie Jean King. Mm, not entirely, no. <laughs> Rosie Casals, maybe, okay. but no, Billie Jean, no. Okay. Um, no. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that was certainly part of it. Well, Grace, uh, thank you so much for coming on to the show with us. Thank you for writing this awesome book that gave us the awesome June, among many other things. <laughs> um, and, uh, and June, may you continue to find ways to write about this book <laughs> into the decades. <laughs> thank you, Grace. Thank I'm, you. So, I'm so flattered. I wish the book weren't out of print. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Grace. That was awesome. It was a pleasure talking to you. 
Gloria Allred has been crusading for women's rights for decades. She apparently never takes a vacation from this, according to a recent New Yorker profile. It's a fabulous profile by Gia Tontino, and it gives us an opportunity to think about whether Gloria Allred is a savior of women or whether she's expanded the boundaries of victimhood so far that absolutely anyone fits inside them. All right. So, Noreen, you, as a person with the Bill Cosby experience, did you, what did you think of Gloria Allred as you were thinking about her role in the Bill Cosby case? Well, I had a Gloria Allred experience as part of my uh, Bill Cosby experience. I actually dealt with her mm. a fair amount on that story. Um, and she is just a fascinating character. You know, the thing about this New Yorker profile is that she comes across almost as a caricature of herself. But that is how she is in real life. She always is imagining herself in front of a microphone at a press conference. You know, she really this like bulldog self-image seems to go into every single sentence that she utters, every single action that she takes. Um, what do you mean? Like, do you mean that when you're having a personal interaction with her, it, it's as if you're both on stage? Like, she never is a normal person? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she she well, so my sort of frustration with her was that she very much wanted to be in control. Right. Um, huh. And of the story that you were, yeah, she, she. So Gloria, like Gloria, is almost. This is something that people say as an insult, um, but it also is true that she is as much a PR master as she is an attorney, um, and so she does not want to put leave something in a journalist's hand. She wants to control the narrative as much as she can. And this was sort of frustrating for me for a bunch of reasons, but um, she's she's also someone who just likes to fight mm-hmm. like I, I have this vivid memory of and I'm not a yeller and we ended up yelling at each <laughs> other and then like the minute we'd resolved it she was like it was like there was this adrenaline that she'd had and she was so happy to talk to me it was just it was a real experience to deal with her I love that I, that is yeah I, was, kind of I mean lady. it was kind of that's fun. awesome yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally totally I mean, one thing about the New Yorker profile is that it, you know, the very end of the profile, it goes into her background. You know, she's written mm-hmm. a book. It's not that this isn't well known, but she had a rough life uh, in the way of rough lives of that generation. Like, bad husband. She was raped. She tried to get an abortion. The abortion didn't go well. Um, and, you know, she had a series of events that women of, of her generation might have suffered and might have been beaten down by. Um, and again, this might be apocryphal, but it felt like, you know, she just like turned the other direction and like put on her boxing gloves, basically. Um, I mean, it, it, it's very much like when, you know, when Hillary Clinton says in her book, like, OK, what I got is my story is the story of feminists, of women of my generation. It felt like that with Gloria Allred, too. Like my story is like this is a story of, of, of women of my generation. And she came back fighting. Yeah, and I think all of Gloria's clients um, think that she has really, really she she fights hard for them, and that's something that they love about her. But the more the more complicated question, as you've hinted at, is okay. So she's fighting really hard on behalf of um, you know Bill Cosby victims. That is sort of you know most people would agree that that is a very serious crime. But she also has applied the same kind of techniques and vigor to like getting Octomom a payout or getting Tiger Woods's mistresses a payout. And the question is, okay, if we are treating these things on an equal plane, um, you know, is that bad for feminism? And that seems to be a question people were posing more about her mm-hmm. four or five years ago than they are now. It was sort of a different era of her career. Mm-hmm. 
But I do think like in in Gloria, I mean, I don't know Gloria well. I have dealt with her a little bit professionally, but I don't know her. But but, you know, I think that she genuinely, as you were saying, inhabits this idea of women as like having to deal with a whole male world that has turned against them. And it's all on a continuum. And on one end, it's Tiger Woods being a total jerk. And on the other end, it's Bill Cosby being a, you know, a, a violent, uh, you know, assaulter. But it's all of a whole cloth. That's I mean, that, that was one of the things that struck me that in, you know, in the legal cases that I have covered, often uh, it's a very much a part of a strategy that you've found these plaintiffs who are sympathetic, whose stories, you know, nobody's ever going to find fault with individuals who just you can't help but sympathize with. And it seems that although sometimes she has sympathetic clients, she also doesn't shy away from clients that. You know, essentially, some people say, oh, well, I don't know if you really should be fighting for her. Like, Which and is she, snobby and she, in some yeah, ways. Yeah, exactly. It's totally snobby um, and and judgy. Um, but, she, you know, and, and certainly gets her criticized and, and gets people who want to criticize uh, the idea of, uh, you know, women uh, making claims against rich men. People who see it that way uh, gets them irritated. But Or you could say that she doesn't discriminate if she thinks somebody... Uh, you know, has a case, she pushes it equally for everyone. And everybody kind of wants that in an attorney, right? I, you know, this is an imperfect analogy, but I was trying to figure out her motivations. Like, why does she do this? You know, she's clearly a good lawyer. She knows how to win a case. She's been in, doing this for decades and decades. She's amazing. And she's probably the most famous lawyer in America, maybe now, working now. Like, I feel like she she gets mentioned and it has more high-profile cases than almost any lawyer you hear about. But in my mind, I was comparing her to Johnny Cochran, which isn't completely fair, you know, um, because O.J. Simpson was, pro- you know, you know, it's a different case. But um, our image of Johnny Cochran has changed over time. He was, like, reviled in, early on, like you're just getting off a guilty man. But in the latest set of movies about O.J. Simpson, it's kind of been broadened now to think, well, there's this bigger picture of justice that he's after, mm-hmm. like this bigger mm-hmm. picture of sort of the criminal justice system and how it treats a man like OJ and how he was like, 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 or like up. Johnny Cochran. Yeah. And spat out by by the system, basically. And so I tried to understand Gloria Allred in that context, like you said, Noreen, like, yeah, sort of like not every individual case like we judge them or they're not all classy, but there's a bigger <laughs> classy. What are you talking about? Octomom? <laughs> Come on. So what do you think she does it? OK, so let's analyze the different reasons she does it. Partly it's just like she likes to get attention. Right. Um, well, OK, so that's the big criticism right. of Gloria Allred. And and you can read that as kind of a sexist thing mm-hmm. if you are so inclined, you know, that that. People don't say that about men who are doing the same thing for their clients. It's their job. On the other hand, I think people is... definitely say that about men. I mean, there's some <laughs> but things people don't say about men that they say about women. But like a man just doing something for his ego, like that's a thing people say about men. Yeah, and it's also like she clearly likes the limelight, and it's part of her legal strategy, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's where it gets complicated with Gloria is that her legal strategy and whatever might be going on with her ego are kind of tied up. Like people hire her because she will get attention. She will get headlines. She, and and by, you know, having these press conferences, by dragging the case into the limelight, she's going to get a settlement. But then that's the same kind of, you know, people, the people she's representing. That's the criticism that you get there. It's that like, oh, they're just, you know, 
they're dragging this poor guy's name through the press and that's how they're getting the money. It's like a shakedown. So it's this, it's this complicated way in which Gloria's own personality is tied up with these like prejudices people have against women who come forward as victims in whatever way. And I think, too, there's a tendency to criticize plaintiff's attorneys. I mean, whether it comes from shows like Law and Order that are all about the prosecution, you know, the prosecutions in these cases, you know, cop cases, law cases tend to be these days about the prosecution. In the old days, they were about, you know, Perry Mason and and defense attorneys. Now, uh, that's changed a little bit. And I think there is you know, the the way that we think of trial attorneys is as ambulance chasers. And, you know, several of the profiles that we read make a great, you know, she, she's very insistent that she never makes a call. She doesn't call anybody. That's People what come she to says. Her. Yeah, she exactly. says and yeah. her close associates say that. So yeah. I don't, I yeah. don't know. <laughs> but, you know, the, why wouldn't, if I had a case like that, of course she would be the person I would try to get to be my attorney. She's really good at her job. Uh, and a lot of these criticisms, uh, I think... Uh, I don't know. It seems maybe because of some attitudes that we have taken that aren't entirely appropriate to bring to a legal matter. Well, the people who do tend to be most uncomfortable with the idea of Gloria Allred, in my experience, are attorneys. Other mm. attorneys are sort of uh, – and, and Gia Tolentino kind of makes mention of this early on in her profile that attorneys sort of like – you know, do the lawyerly thing where they pause and don't say anything and choose their words carefully. But I think there's something about the way she operates, again, because PR is so much of her strategy and that is a little antithetical to the way a lot of lawyers operate, that she does provoke a certain kind of reaction in other lawyers. Mm. As I was reading these, I definitely ended up pro (laughs) all red. I definitely ended up wondering after reading a lot about her whether some of my resistance to her was you know, sexism, just basically like Mm -hmm. cultural resistance. Um, I was thinking a lot about Paula Jones and the way, you know, not all that long ago, the culture talked casually about the kinds of women who are like the women that Gloria Allred tends to represent. Mm -hmm. Um, So it wasn't Mm -hmm. that long ago. And then also, don't you think because we're in the Trump era, we need her? Like, we feel like we need her more than we might have. So when you read the criticisms of her, the criticisms of victimhood, they're kind of the criticisms of her particular definition of victimhood and how she's kind of cheapened it. That that, that feels like from a more safe, secure age than than the one that we live in now, basically. Um, So like, I'm really glad she's around now. Well, I think her style matches the era, right? So so we are in this kind of She's suing Trump, right, on behalf of um, a woman who who he wouldn't let participate in the Miss Universe pageant because she was transgender. And well, uh, and she's also suing him on behalf of a client who was groped, who says she was groped by him on the set of The Apprentice. I mean, she has multiple lawsuits. Right. So it is it's like insensibility. She's a match for the era. I also think there's something about the way that she operates as a PR strategist that is well suited to the internet age, you know, mm-hmm, like absolutely. they're, you know, the way that she gets attention to her clients. But on the idea of expanding victimhood, I'm, I like am so, I can go both ways on this, right? Like there is an argument that actually it's more precarious in this era than others. Um, you know, that, that five years ago, it wasn't that big of a deal if, um, you know, Octomom and, and rape victims were sort of put in the same conversation. But now, 
the culture seems to be so turned against women in this Trump era that maybe it's more dangerous. I don't know. I mean, I think. Oh, I I, see what you're saying, that in fact, she's not good for us in this era because she turns victimhood into a cartoon, that victimhood is a serious thing. And she maybe or there's an element for the way she operates that kind of feeds into the ideas that people in Trump's camp have in their heads about women who call themselves victims, that they're just trying to get attention, that their cases are slightly tawdry or ridiculous, whether they are or not she 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 like walks right into that criticism yeah she walks into that criticism i'm not sure i feel that way i mean i think you know my my personal feeling on gloria allred in the in the instance in which i know her work is which is in the cosby case i you know i think she's on the side of truth and justice and um you know is really tenacious for that but i do understand and have some sympathy for the criticism that people like chelsea handler have made of her which is an interesting like place for the feminist criticism to come from which is chelsea it just it's a complicated thing what did chelsea handler say she basically said, I mean, this this was happening about four years ago, but she basically said maybe more than four years ago, um, the sort of Rachel Yucatel era. But she thought that Gloria Allred was pushing the movement back with expanding the definition of victimhood. And it would be interesting to hear what she thinks now. But, uh, you know, she wasn't speaking to this particular era. So, yes, on the one hand, she does create these soap operatic narratives of victimhood. On the other hand, the story that she starts with, which is a story about the Marines keeping up these revenge porn sites uh, and Facebook pages and how they keep popping up, that's that's like a genuine case of social justice. Right. I mean, that's the thing, I think, that... You know, some of the cases is it, what we've essentially what we've been saying that some of the cases are like you just sort of think, oh God, you know, is, is this what you're pushing for now? But we all, we don't know every single case that she does, uh, and she seems to be like this. She, she doesn't seem to discriminate against like what some people would call as like trashy, slightly embarrassing. Oh God, you're just trying to get a payday, and you know, truth and just fight absolutely, um, you know, no holds barred fight for truth and justice. And I find that kind of admirable about Gloria Allred. And I think, you know, if you have a client who has the potential to get a payday, you're going to take that client. That doesn't mean it, that that really shouldn't have any effect on how people view your other clients. Um, I just think that this is a person who takes on a lot of uh, cases and yes, yeah, some of them are slightly embarrassing, but I don't see that as a reason to dismiss all of her, her or all of her clients. Would you guys hire her if you ever got into a sexual harassment oh, situation? Would you <laughs> In do a it? heartbeat. You, you would? would? Oh, totally. She's uh, the best. I wouldn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think that's like a stylistic difference. Like I admire Gloria's style. She is, um, uh, yeah, I admire it, but I think just it would not mesh well with my own personal sort of style. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I could do it either just because I would feel that I would be immediately thrust into a certain role or narrative, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But on the other hand, if I was that Marine woman, I would do it just because you're just like fighting this big, overwhelming, like threatening and giant, unmovable establishment. Yeah, and in that particular case, the people who were supposed to take action, NCIS, you know, these various Marine Corps uh, officer, you know, offices that are supposed to deal with things like just were doing nothing. They've been told and they were doing nothing. And Gloria Allred got shit done. And that's yeah, clearly true. what she does. She's great at raising awareness that like which is no small part of cases like this. Yeah. OK, we're basically pro Gloria Allred with some reservations. We'll end it at that. 
All right. Recommendations. Noreen, what do you have for us today? Uh, well, first, this is more of a commendation, I suppose, since this is a very familiar thing. But I just want to take a moment to um, say what I think are, is one of the best couplets written about women, um, which is by Tom Petty, R.I.P. She was an American girl raised on promises. <laughs> I've been playing that song all week and I'm sad. Um, I love and, Tom Petty. I just want to say that as like a not rocker girl. I just love Tom Petty. Yeah, yeah, yeah me too. I'm not. I'm not a classic rock person, and uh, I just his songs kind of are, have a deep place in my heart. Um, that one in particular, and then my real recommendation uh, is the Hot One by Carolyn Mernick, who, full disclosure, works at New York Magazine with me. But it's a memoir of her best friend, her childhood best friend who um, was murdered in her um, early 20s. And Carolyn uh, goes back and reconstructs her friend's life. Her friend had moved to Los Angeles and they had grown apart and her friend had gotten involved in sort of a seedy kind of crowd and was dating Ashton Kutcher and working as a stripper. And so so it's both a, a sort of true crime page turner and also a really lovely meditation on, you know, childhood best friendships and, and best friendships between women and the way they change and the way you compare yourself. Um, so if you're looking for a page turner with uh, some real thinking behind it, the hot one. Wow, that sounds great. <laughs> it does. Um, I want to recommend The Butterfly Effect, which is a podcast on Audible by John Ronson. It's about the techification, not a word, but you know what I mean, of the porn industry. It's so surprisingly moving and particular and has so many weird and interesting stories. And it's so humane. It's just a wonderful series. I know like Audible is a barrier. I get that. It will be on iTunes, I think, starting in November. But since we talked about Hugh Hefner and sexual revolution, I feel like there's a lot of looking back now. There's the deuce and then Mm -hmm. the butterfly effect is like the deuce part two, basically. <laughs> uh, it's like the deuce off the streets. Um, I love the deuce too. So, um, so, uh, so anyway, that's, I, I just think it's great. It's great. I think we should talk about the deuce. I'm just saying it on the air so we actually do it. Okay, say it on the air. And listeners, if you have opinions <laughs> about that, seriously, um, tell us if you think we should talk about the deuce and the women on the deuce. And if we are going to talk about it, then you should listen to David Simon, the producer, creator of the deuce's interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, which is a lot about women in the deuce. Anyway, June, what do you have? So I want to recommend uh, a new memoir from Armistead Mopan, the writer of the Tales of the City series and and other novels. Um, His new memoir is called Logical Family, and it's about his sort of early childhood, um, his service in Vietnam, his moving to uh, San Francisco and starting the daily series, you know, Tales of the City started as a, a kind of a serial in uh, in the San Francisco Chronicle. And um, it's so it's a guy who is um, starts, is a, you know, a child of the South is, is you know, his, his parents and his father, especially is all about their their Confederate history. And it's, it's even though it's slightly unsatisfying because you don't re- he doesn't really explain what happened. He converts from a young, very right wing Republican into, you know, who meets with Nixon and so on and is, a, you know, kind of part of this like Republican veterans group post-Vietnam into a very liberal guy. Um, and it's just he's such a readable writer. He like it's I've just been not not really reading much this year for various reasons. And 
even I couldn't stop turning the pages uh, with this book. Um, and it's also very dishy. Uh, so there's that too. Uh, it's Logical Family by Armistead Maupin. Great. May that be an inspiration to Republicans everywhere. Follow his lead. <laughs> Sounds great. Uh, well, thank you all. Thanks to our producer, Verilyn Williams, a wonderful producer. Thanks also to our intern, Daniel Schrader. I will say one last time, we really, really want you to sign up for Slate Plus because we have so much fun doing it and we want more of you to listen to it. So if you're not already a Slate Plus member, you should go to slate.com slash xxplus and sign up right now. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen. We will talk to you again in two weeks. <laughs>